Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we get started uh, this evening. Let's have a few moments where we have silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we've seen in our study in Hebrews, as we've gone through this whole issue of doctrine of cleansing uh, as a backdrop for understanding Hebrews chapter 9, and as we'll pull things together tonight, this is so crucial. We looked at John 13 last week and saw that Jesus said that to Peter that if you don't let me do this, that is in terms of washing his feet, which is a picture of the ongoing cleansing from sin, which occurs in a believer's life, uh, that you'll have no inheritance or share a portion with me in the kingdom. So this is a very important doctrine that we keep in fellowship and stay in fellowship, not just keep getting back into fellowship. But as I pointed out last time, the issue is to walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, not just keep getting there. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Uh, as we prepare for Bible class, let's pray. Father, it's such a tremendous privilege to be able to study your word, to be able to dig deeply into the uh, scriptures, Old and New Testament, to put things together and to come to such a clear understanding of your policies and procedures, your promises, and all of the ways that you have, all the things you have provided for us for our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we continue to study tonight, and we go back and we look at a number of things we've studied in the last year and just try to tie together these loose ends and, and pull them together so that we can understand the flow of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, we pray that things will be clear to us, that we'll be able to focus and concentrate and put aside all the distractions of the things that have been going on uh, today and the things that will go on tomorrow, that we can focus on your word and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things very clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, I'm only going to go to one verse there again as we start. We'll get there mostly tonight. I want to go back to John 13. So if you're going to open your Bible somewhere, open them to John 13. I wanted to tie together one point I left 
loose last time. And it's also important because it really helps us to, to connect the dots with what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, the focal point of what we're seeing in the last part of Hebrews chapter 9 is that cleansing, and that's been a doctrine that the writer's been talking about. He's been focusing on ritual cleansing earlier in chapter 9, and then he goes to the cleansing that occurs at the cross, that the cleansing of sin is only through death. Apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Well, that's what that means. Apart from a certain kind of death, there is no forgiveness. There's no eternal forgiveness, judicial forgiveness of sin. And we have that in Christ. So Hebrews 9 is, actually Hebrews 9 and 10 become the the top of the staircase, as it were, that we've been climbing since Hebrews chapter 1. And tonight what I want to do is pull together some of the uh, loose ends, some of these uh, different strands that we have been focusing on for the last year as we've gone through Hebrews chapter 9. Taken a long time to get through Hebrews 9, but it is built on such a uh, significant understanding of Old Testament ritual, Old Testament procedures, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of these things, that to go back and and study these things as they were originally revealed in the Old Testament and then tie it together is what we've been doing. And it shows that Bible study is not always a real simple procedure. It's not just superficial. It's not that you can't gain things from just uh, grazing over the surface, but at times you really need to, we really need to dig deeply in order to make sure we understand these concepts and the words that are used. For example, as we get into thought I had it in the slide up here at the first. Let me just bounce down here to, let me see this slide. Here we go. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason he is the mediator. What's a mediator? How many people that you talk to on the street know what a mediator is? Mediator of a new covenant. What's a covenant? What's the new covenant? How does the new covenant relate to the old covenant? How does the new covenant relate to the church? How does the new covenant relate to the future of Israel? Uh, so that since a death, what kind of death? Seven different kinds of death in the scripture. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption, what's redemption? What does that mean? Redemption of the transgressions. What transgression? What is a transgression? Uh, transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. First covenant, what covenant is that? Uh, those who have been called may receive. What does it mean to have been called? What's the promise? What's the eternal inheritance? These are all concepts we've gone through in various ways over the last year. But it just shows, what I just wanted to point out was that a simple verse like this is loaded with extremely technical vocabulary that is defined through its introduction in the flow of Revelation, starting in Genesis and working all the way through the Bible. Many people today think, well, why do we even need to study the Old Testament? Uh, the Old Testament, well, that's the Old Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. We're in the church age. Let's not study the Old Testament. But what this, these, a study of Hebrews shows is you can't understand the New Testament and these rich doctrines that the writer of Hebrews is unpacking for us coming out of the cross if you don't understand the way 
God set this up in the Old Testament through the pictures and the images and the foreshadowing from the Old Testament, what we call a type. And all of this really seems to come together in Hebrews chapter 9 because the focal point of Hebrews 9 is on the Old Testament ritual related to the Day of Atonement and how that pictures what Christ accomplished on the cross, what the writer of Hebrews calls in this chapter, eternal, having accomplished eternal redemption. Past tense, it's completed. So, we stopped on this term, eternal inheritance, as we were going through uh, this verse to understand what the New Testament teaches about inheritance. And the last thing we looked at in terms of inheritance was the emphasis that Jesus gave to cleansing of sin in relation to having a share of our inheritance in the millennial kingdom. And so I just want to step back a minute and look at John 13. Uh, A couple of things I did not tie together last time, and just just by way of review, and then we'll get into Hebrews 9. Okay, in Hebrews, let me get back up here, John 13, 1. We're told now before the feast of the Passover, and I announced on Tuesday night that next Thursday is Passover. Uh, April the 9th is Passover, and I'm going to do another Passover demonstration here. Now, we won't have communion with it. Sometimes we do that. But we won't have communion with it, which the Lord's table comes out of the uh, out of the Passover, but I'll, I'll do a full Passover demonstration. And then the following Sunday is, of course, Resurrection Day, and it's the second Sunday in the month, which is when we observe the Lord's table. So it will help set the stage for what we're going to do on Sunday morning at the Lord's table and uh, the resurrection. So it's nice how it sort of uh, fits together. So it's the time for the Feast of the Passover, the night before the Passover, and Jesus is going to sit down with his disciples and have the Passover meal. And the text here verse in 13.1 says, um, Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And I pointed out last time that this passage is bracketed by this reference to love. And if you go down to the end of the, I just put this in here a minute, the end of the chapter, you see that in John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus gives a new commandment. He says that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this, that is, by this loving one another, uh, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, what happens in the middle of this? And that's important. And, and last time I talked about how Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet wasn't a picture of being a servant. That's not what he's emphasizing. You don't see that word emphasized in here at all. The picture is something to do with loving one another. And the model is, as I have loved you, So the standard in this new commandment is not like the Old Testament standard in Leviticus uh, Leviticus 18.13, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The standard is not to love someone as you love yourself, but love someone as Christ loved the church. New standard, a little bit uh, more difficult. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. 
What he's demonstrating there in the foot washing is the principle of cleansing of sin, which is a picture of forgiveness. And the connection is that Jesus is saying, as I have forgiven you, which is what's depicted in the concept of cleansing, you are to do to one another, forgive one another. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And he uses the same word there he uses in, in uh, Colossians, which is charizomai. It has to do with gracing somebody out, being gracious to them despite what they have done. So the event of the foot washing is bracketed by this emphasis on love. Now, to remind you of what happened in the foot washing, Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, wrapped himself in a towel so he wouldn't get sloshed water all over himself, poured water in the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. This was a little too much for Peter. And when he came to Peter, Peter challenged him and said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, "I'm basically, to uh, paraphrase it, Peter, you're not going to understand the significance of this object lesson now, but you will in the future when the Holy Spirit gives you precise revelation that uh, explains this. And so he's picturing something, and that's how we understand abstract doctrine often is by these pictures that God gives us in in the Scripture. And so Peter says, no, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. Uh, And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, You'll have no part with me. And I emphasize two, two words there. The word for washing here is the Greek word nipto, which has to do with only a partial washing. Uh, using the word nipto, you'd say, I washed my face or I washed my hands or I washed my feet. But you would use a different word, the word luo, if you were talking about taking a full bath. Now that's important because the full bath pictures what we call positional cleansing. Now, keep that in mind. There's, there's two different kinds of cleansing that we see in Scripture. The kind of cleansing that is full, total, and uh, uh, what we call positional because it's in Christ that occurs at the instant of salvation. And when you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, at that instant you become washed totally. Now, the picture of that from the Old Testament was that when the high priest is inaugurated into the priesthood, he took a bath. He, he's washed from head to toe. But from that point on, he is to wash his hands and his feet at the, at the laver whenever he goes in to serve the Lord in the temple. And that's that picture of that ongoing cleansing. We're completely cleansed legally, positionally from our sin at salvation, but experientially we still sin. And because we still sin, that breaks fellowship with God. It breaks that walk by the Holy Spirit. And so it has to be uh, this, this experiential cleansing or forgiveness needs to take place in order for us to recover fellowship and to resume our forward momentum in the spiritual life. If we don't do that, then we'll just stop dead in our tracks and we won't go forward. And if we don't go forward, the Holy Spirit's not working in our life. He's not producing the fruit of the Spirit. He's not producing spiritual growth. He's not producing that which is rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. Nothing rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. There's no reward. There's no inheritance. And that's what this word part means. It's the Greek word meros, meaning a share or a portion 
the, uh, that, that portion of the inheritance that would go to the heir. And so Jesus says, if you don't, I don't, if you don't let me partially wash you, experiential cleansing, 1 John 1 9, you'll have no, you have no, uh, inheritance with me, Peter. And so Peter goes all the way to the other extreme and says, Lord, don't only wash my feet, wash my hand, wash my head, give me a bath. Basically, and then Jesus says in John 13:10, He who has bathed, luo, needs only to wash, nipto his feet, but is completely clean. clean. That is that restoration to fellowship. Now, what I want you to pay attention to here is this concept of cleansing because this is uh, related to forgiveness. Now, we have two kinds of cleansing. We have positional cleansing that occurs when you're saved. That's the application of Christ's work on the cross to you as an individual. At, when you, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and regeneration. And then there is ongoing cleansing experientially when you get out of fellowship. Now, with forgiveness, we're going to see, and we've seen in the past, that there's three kinds of forgiveness. I just want you to remind you of these as we tie and start connecting a lot of dots tonight. The first kind of forgiveness is what I'm going to call legal forgiveness. This is what occurred at the cross when Christ paid the penalty for everybody's sin and God is judicially satisfied propitiation. Christ pays the penalty for everybody's sin. That's redemption. And the result of that is that man is reconciled to God. Okay, those three things come out of that that legal work that Christ does that happened at the cross. The problem is everybody's still left spiritually dead and with with uh, uh, unrighteousness. Uh, minus are they're uh, uh, they're not saved. They don't have the kind of righteousness that they need to have fellowship with God. That is what we get when we trust in Christ as our Savior. We're regenerated. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're declared to be just, and then we have eternal life, and we th- that is solved. And from that point on, there needs to be the ongoing uh, washing or experiential cleansing. So we have these two categories of cleansing, three categories of forgiveness. These are ours in a unique way in the church age because of the completed work of Christ on the cross and are the application of the new covenant. Now, that in a nutshell is what the writer of Hebrews has been saying since chapter 7. 7, 8, and 9 all focus on the implication of that and what that means for our future destiny with Christ. Now, that all of that just simply by way of review. Now, let's go to Hebrews 9.15. Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, the writer says, and this is a phrase in the Greek that indicates that he is uh, drawing a uh, conclusion and an explanation out from what he has said in the previous uh, verses. Now, in the previous verses, in the paragraph break, it comes, uh, the New King James breaks it between 14 and 15, but I think the break probably comes uh I mean, the, the New King James breaks it between 15 and 16, but the break should come between 14 and 15 for the paragraph. 
In the previous two verses, the contrast is between the limited ritual cleansing that comes from sprinkling the blood of the bulls and the goats and the ashes of the heifer, and that that's only good for the external purification of the flesh. The point was what? It did something. All of that sacrifice with the blood did something. It, it, it was temporary, and it pictured a ritual, and it was for ritual cleansing. Okay, keep that in mind, for ritual cleansing. We saw that this whole aspect of talking about the blood of something, the blood of the goats, uh, Christ's blood, all of this, and the term blood was really a figure of speech, what uh, Bullinger calls in his classic work on the figures of speech in the Bible, a metalepsis or double metonymy, where you have two symbols, actually. The blood represents death. In Hebrews, we're told that the life is in the blood. So when the blood is gone, there's no life. So the blood, or the loss of blood, the shedding of blood, pictures the loss of life. Uh, Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, whenever uh, man sheds man's blood, talking about murder. Well, you don't have to limit murder to just shedding somebody's physical blood. You can poison them or strangle them or... um, hit them over the head, blunt force trauma, any number of things, and there may not be any, any external bleeding at all. may not even be internal bleeding. So you have, uh, but, but there's loss of life, it's murder, but it's depicted in this, in this figure of speech, the shedding of blood. So physical blood represents physical death. But physical death in turn represents a spiritual death uh, so that's that double metonymy, that double figure of speech. Physical death represents, I mean, blood represents physical death. Physical death represents spiritual death. And the spiritual death is what is accomplished uniquely by Jesus Christ on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the day he's crucified. That is when the Father imputes to him the sins of the world and judicially deals with the sin of the world. And that is when uh, the skies are darkened and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After those three hours are over with, Jesus said what? It's finished. It's completed. It is over with, paid in full. Again, it's an economic term. It's a term that a, a waiter might write on a bill or after you paid off your mortgage, they'd write it on the bottom of your mortgage. Paid in full, complete, nothing more can be added to it. It's, it's all done. Before he died physically, before he goes to the grave, before he's resurrected, the saving work of Jesus Christ is completed on the cross. Everything necessary for our salvation is done at that time. Nothing else, the, the, the burial, the resurrection are significant, but not, soter- not in that as- aspect of soteriology, not for justification or forgiveness. Now, let's stop where we are, 9.15, and we look at this and we bring in these concepts of a mediator, a go-between, somebody who is, is a go-between between two different people. You talk about uh, when labor and management are uh, at odds with one another, they bring in someone to help mediate the contract. 
Well, this is the same idea. We have a new covenant, which is a new contract that God is going to bring with specifically in context the house of Israel and the house of Judah, right? Hebrews chapter 8. So in 9.15, the writer of Hebrews is going back to chapter 8, and he picks up this thread of mediator, and now he's going to pull this in. He picks up the thread of new covenant, which started in chapter 7, and he's pulling that thread, which he's hit two or three times now in chapter 8, chapter 9, and now he ties that together, so he's going to weave these two together, and now he t- pulls in the thread of redemption, which, is, which he's already introduced at, in terms of what Christ did on the cross, the picture of the Day of Atonement. And the transgressions, these are these old transgressions that were committed during the Old Covenant, and the only thing that dealt with them were the ritual sacrifices, the blood of the bulls and the goats, etc. So he's going to tie that together, and then he's going to point us to this, to the promise of the eternal inheritance. So what I want to do now is to take you back to chapter 7. So just turn your Bibles back to chapter 7, and let's just walk our way through what the writer has been saying. The first point he made back in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is that Christ is going to is a superior priest. He represents a superior priesthood. And that is the priesthood of Melchizedek, that somewhat enigmatic Gentile priest king, the royal priest king of Jerusalem at the time of Abraham. He is not, Jesus that is, is not a priest that fits the qualifications for an Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. He's got a broader ministry. It's not just to Israel, it is to mankind as a whole. So this is what the writer is emphasizing in the first ten verses of chapter 7. From there, he's going to pull, pull in the next point, which means that now that we've, he's shown us that there's a change in priesthood, he says in verse 12 that a change in the priesthood means a change of the law. Verse 12 says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity. And this word that he uses there is used many times in this section. He's showing the logic. He's drawing logical conclusions from the, the, the statements that he's making. That if there's a change of priesthood of necessity, of the logical force of that means that the law has to change. If you're not operating on the Levitical priesthood, which is inherent to the, to the whole, uh, Sinaitic covenant, the whole Mosaic covenant, if you're, if you're not, uh, if that priesthood is no longer valid, then you have to have a whole new covenant. And so 712 is a swing principle. There has to be a change of the law. Now, the third thing that he points out in, in his quote of Psalm 110.4 that comes in verses, um, he quotes it in 21, but he actually refers to it several times in this passage. He alludes to it again in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And that is that Jesus has a universal and eternal priesthood. 
It's not like the Levitical priesthood. That's temporary. They're born. They die. They can only serve from the uh, time that they're uh, inaugurating the priesthood until they're, they're 40 years old. That's it. They can't serve uh, their whole life. It is a uh, limited priesthood. Not only that, but the Aaronic priesthood is uh, based on a limited and weak commandment, the former commandment, verse 18, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. It doesn't really complete anything. There's no total forgiveness. There's no resolution of the sin problem. So the Aaronic priesthood has limitations. It's flawed. It's based on limited and weak commandment which made nothing complete, but we have a better hope, verse 19, through which we draw near to God. So we have this better hope. Now, this better hope is going to be tied to better promises and a better covenant. Better hope, better promises, better covenant, all tied to the uh, to the new covenant. And we see that Jesus is the guarantee of that better covenant in verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And that will be, as we'll see, because of his because of his death on the cross. So that's the flow. We got a new priesthood. Priesthood means a new law. The old priesthood was flawed and limited and finite, and Jesus is going to guarantee a better covenant because he's a better priest. Okay. He's superior as a priest because he did not have to die for his own sins. Verse uh, 26, the priests had to bring sacrifices for their sins because they were sinners, but Jesus doesn't have any sins. He's in, he is impeccable, so he's superior and he doesn't have to die for his own sins. Verse 26. Next, he says, Jesus was not appointed by the law, that is the Mosaic law. He's appointed by the oath of God that God swears in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the foundation of Jesus' appointment to his priesthood is this oath by God, not the Mosaic law, uh, 728. Then as we get into the first part of chapter 8, there's a summary of what chapter 7 said. And the writer focuses on Jesus' superiority now because he is presently seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he is a minister of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, we talked about this along the way, that in heaven there is the prototype of the tabernacle. The tabernacle really talks about a place where God dwells. Uh, the, the Hebrew word was, uh, was uh, a skene, which has to do with a, a dwelling, an inhabitation. So heaven, the throne room of God, this is God's dwelling place. That's the heavenly tabernacle or the heavenly temple. A revelation depicts that. And what we're seeing this next Tuesday night on our studying Revelation on Tuesday, we'll come to this seeing the Ark of the Covenant. That's not the Ark that Moses had built. That is the heavenly prototype that's in the heavenly temple, the heavenly temple uh, in, in Revelation. In Revelation, it's always referred to as the temple, not the tabernacle. So Jesus is now in heaven, and there is this heavenly sanctuary that is the dwelling place of God, which is where God sits upon his judicial throne in the heavens. 
And before him we know there's the uh, altar of incense that's depicted in Revelation. The uh, There is the... Um, and the Ark of the Covenant, these are present in in heaven. So Jesus is now a minister, according to verse 2, a minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So that's the heavenly tabernacle. And as such, he's there because he offered himself, and because he's offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, he's the mediator of this better covenant that has better uh, promises. And this is emphasized in uh, verse 6, Hebrews 8, 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. What ministry is that? That's the ministry that is uh, in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle in heaven. Now, this is important because at the end of chapter 9, in these verses we're coming to, we go right back to talking about this heavenly tabernacle again, the heavenly, heavenly furniture. Uh, and just as a note, in Hebrews 8 5, we read that, that the earthly priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, we're going to get into this terminology of type and antitype. And what that means is a, a type was a marker, an impression upon something. And so we, it enters into uh, theological vocabulary to, uh, to describe shadows or patterns in the Old Testament that specifically depict doctrines or person or events related to Christ in the New Testament. The reality is called an antitype. The shadow is called the type. The earthly tabernacle and temple is a type. It is the shadow. The antitype or the reality is what's up in heaven. And so what we see on earth is merely a shadow or a reflection designed to teach the ultimate truths of what's happening in, before the throne of God, in God's presence, in this heavenly uh, throne room, which is the courtroom of God, because the transaction that takes place there is this judicial transaction related to what Christ does on the cross. So, Hebrews 8, 6, he's a mediator of a better covenant. Now, we, this word mediator is going to be picked up in Hebrews 9, 15 comes from Hebrews 8.6. So that's where the, the thread starts uh, pulling together. Now, the next thing we see is that we have an introduction of a better or a new covenant which makes the old covenant obsolete. That's Hebrews 8.13. Verse 8, Hebrews 8.8 through 8.12 is a quotation of the entire passage from Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses 31 to 33. But he quotes that whole passage simply to draw one point, and that is because it says a new covenant, that means the old covenant is obsolete, and it was always viewed as temporary. So we have the introduction of a better covenant, which equals the new covenant. That makes the old obsolete in 8.13. Then we get got into Hebrews 9. In the first ten verses of Hebrews 9, the first covenant is described as focusing on, a blood sac- on the blood sacrifice rituals 
which had only a temporary ritual cleansing value. The, the focal point was really that ritual that occurred once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it, in the, on the Day of Atonement, a transaction occurred whereby as the blood, as the, as the, as the sacrifice that is without spot or blemish is sacrificed on the brazen altar, and then the blood from that sacrifice was taken into the Holy of Holies and splattered uh, before the Ark of the Covenant. It is a depiction of the fact that God is satisfied that the sins have been cleansed from Israel for another year. And every year they had to do this again, so it's not permanent, it's just temporary. And the idea of... of um, Atonement depicts primarily the idea of judicial cleansing. So it ties together the doctrines of propitiation, redemption, and reconciliation, which is what we talked about when we went through a lengthy analysis of the Day of Atonement. So the Old Covenant Atonement ritual could not make the worshiper clean before God, only clean ritually. Remember, the priest may not even be a believer. He, he did not have to, he just had to, the only requirement for the priest was that he had to be physically related to Levi. And he couldn't have any external uh, blemishes or health problems. And that qualified him to be a priest. It doesn't say anything in Leviticus 9 about his spiritual qualifications. So the Old Covenant atonement ritual couldn't make the worshiper clean before God, only clean ritually. That's where we come to in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. Now, in Hebrews 9, 9, 8, what we read is the Holy Spirit indicating this, that is, from the Old Testament sacrifices, that the way into the holiest of all, that is, the way into God's presence itself, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. See, those sins aren't truly dealt with yet. Their conscience isn't cleansed before the judicial bar of God's, uh, God's court. It is symbolic, verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the surface, service perfect or complete in regard to the conscience. So they couldn't cleanse the conscience. He's going to turn right around, and when we come down to verse 14, that because of what Christ did on the cross, offered himself without spot to God, that will cleanse the conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. So you see there's a contrast between the failure of these Old Testament sacrifices to truly solve the sin problem and that Christ's death on the cross does truly solve the sin, the sin problem. So that brings us up to uh, where we've been for some time. And starting in verse 11, Christ comes as a high priest of the good things to come. And notice the focus is on the future. He came as a high priest. That relates back to uh, first advent Ministry primarily focusing on his work at the cross, the sacrifice of himself as the focal point of his priestly ministry, but it has a future orientation 
the good things to come, which relates is a term that relates to the millennial uh, and kingdom blessings. So Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That's the heavenly tabernacle, which we'll call the supreme court of heaven. His dwelling place in heaven is indicated by the Ark of the Covenant, which pictured the satisfaction of justice, and the altar of incense, which and those two were linked together. Uh, the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, is not this creation. And that Jesus came not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Now, we stopped and did, that's where we did our study on the meaning of the term blood. And we saw that that is a, this, this metaphor, uh, this metonymy, double metonymy, or metalepsis. And we should read this for a corrected translation, not with the death of goats and calves, but with his own death. See, that's what blood stands for. It stands for death. So when we translate the idiom more literally to get the, the, the thrust of it, then we understand the passage a little more precisely. It wasn't on the basis of the death of these animals, but with his own death he entered the most holy place. Now, what most holy place is that? That's the heavenly, the heavenly courtroom of God. The most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He's already accomplished redemption. And, and see, redemption has these two senses. It has this one sense of purchase. What's purchased? What is, or what is paid? What is paid is the judicial penalty for sin. That is the objective side of redemption. The subjective side is the release of the slave from slavery to sin. But what he's talking about here isn't the personal application in the release from slavery to sin. He's talking about the payment of the price demanded by the justice of God. So he accomplished that. It's finished at the cross. So, this takes us back to what we studied in Colossians chapter 2. Where did my Colossians 2 go? I just put it in here. Yeah, Colossians 1 and 2. So we're going to come up with the word aphasis in a minute for forgiveness. But let me just remind you what Colossians 2 said. And you, because you were being dead, you were already dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him. That's what happened at regeneration. By having forgiven, that's uh, I'm translating the participle for you there in a more correct or more precise manner as a participle of means. By having forgiven you, uh, he graced you out. He forgave you of all trespasses. When? It occurred at the cross. That's what Colossians 1.13 says. He delivered us from the power of uh, the darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, a phasis. It has to do with that that objective sense of a forgiveness or the canceling of a debt. It was an economic term. And then Colossians 2.14 ex- explains it in, in the same economic way. Having wiped out, or the way he forgave us, by having forgiven you all trespasses, 
by canceling out the certificate of debt. That's how he forgave us. That's the legal or judicial sense of forgiveness. That doesn't mean it's applied to you uh, soteriologically yet. It has to do with the satisfaction of God's justice, the payment of the price, so that sin is not the issue between man and God anymore. Does that mean everybody's saved? No. Because you're, everybody's still born spiritually dead and they're still born unrighteous. But what it means is God has solved the sin problem, so the issue in the issue in evangelism isn't all the sins you've committed and all the terrible things you've done. Now, you, I think you have to understand you're a sinner under condemnation because in order to respond to a message of salvation, you have to understand you, you need to be saved. From what? From condemnation. We are spiritually dead. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And there needs to be regeneration that comes only through only through Jesus Christ. Okay, now we go back to, let me go back to where we are in Hebrews 9.15. And unfortunately, when I converted some stuff over on PowerPoint, the slide didn't come up right. So let's just go through this verse again and we'll move forward. For this reason, that is because of what was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, which cleanses our conscience from dead works. And for this reason that we are now cleansed and we can serve the living God, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place, see, earlier it used the term blood. Now it's using the term death. Because, And we could... Paraphrase it if we wanted to. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that because of his blood, that's the purchase price for redemption. You have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but from the precious blood is of a lamb without spot or blemish. See how these terms are used interchangeably. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that means that their sins are now taken care of. It was just provisional until the cross. Uh, The sins that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So now that sin's dealt with, we can have that eternal inheritance. Now, when we went through this lengthy study of inheritance the last few lessons, I pointed out that there are two kinds of heirs. There is an heirship that relates to every believer. We're called heirs of God in Romans 8.17. That is true for every believer. But there's a second heirship which is true of those who suffer with Christ, the joint heir with Christ, and that is only true of those who press on and in their spiritual life and, and grow. The focus here, the promise of eternal inheritance is related to eternal life. It's related to that new covenant. Uh, Hebrews 8, 6. He's the mediator of the new covenant that's enacted on better promises. Notice the connection of promise and covenant there. Also, um, when we look at what is said earlier in this chapter related to the Holy Spirit back in 
Um, uh, earlier, he's called the eternal, eternal spirit. Uh, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, uh, Christ enters the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 14, it's through the blood of Christ, who through the death of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself. So we have eternal redemption, eternal spirit to cleanse our conscience from dead works, and now we have the eternal inheritance. So this is talking in verse 15. uh, The promise of eternal inheritance is that because there is now a full payment of sin and God's justice is satisfied and there is true forgiveness at the judicial level, the potential is that we can receive the promise of uh, the, the potential is our future promise and reception of that eternal inheritance based on faith alone and Christ alone. Now we then shift, and he's going to he does a little funny thing on sort of a play on words here in verse um, verse sixteen. Verse 16, he says, for where a covenant is, and that's how it's translated in the New King James Version, uh, or excuse me, the New American Standard. In the New King James, it recognizes that he's really using the same word with a different sense. The New King James translates it for where there is a testament. See, the word diatheke, and that's the... uh, that's the slide I lost here, so I'm going to I want to change the color here. There we go. Uh, Diatheke is a term that can mean covenant in one context, but in another context it means a will, just like you have a last will and testament. A will is to the disposition of your earthly possessions when you die. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's using the same word but with two different meanings. In the previous verse, it referred to a covenant. But here it refers to a particular type of contract that is a will that occurs at the time of death. And so just like an English word letter, uh, the English word letter can refer to a letter in the alphabet, or it can refer to correspondence, uh, usually some sort of epistolary correspondence. So diatheke is the same, the same kind of thing. And in verse 16 he says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. So before the will is enacted, before the covenant is enacted, the person who made the will has to die. And it's not until they die that the uh, covenant or the will goes into effect. That's the point that he is making in terms of his illustration. And verse 17, for a covenant that is a will is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. And he's using this as an illustration to show that Christ had, there had to be a death in order for this covenant to be established. That covenants are established and validated on the basis of a death. 
And then he's going to say in verse 19, but I have, going to again have a, there we go, see, just magic that verse appeared. 918, therefore, he concludes, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. That's a double negative. And he states it that way in order for to make us stop and think about it. If he had said, therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, it wouldn't cause us to stop and think about it as much as it does with the double negative. With the double negative, we have to stop and say, well, what is he really saying there? And that's what he wants us to do. He's pointing out that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, was was inaugurated with blood, and that means what? What what word are you going to substitute for blood? Death. The first covenant was inaugurated with death, and there had to be this shedding of blood. And so what he's going to do in verse 19 is he's going to start to show... Um, from the Old Testament, the shadow image related to cleansing. What did we start off talking about tonight? Cleansing. And that this cleansing can only come through, what? The sprinkling of blood. It is that application of a death that makes cleansing possible. That's what these next verses are going to talk about. So in verse uh, 19, he says, uh, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats that were sacrificed there in the covenant ceremony that's described in, um, in Exodus chapter 24. He says, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself, that is the, the law code, the scroll, and the people. And then he's going to go into the tabernacle, and he's going to sprinkle everything with blood. Why is he doing that? Because they've all been affected by sin, all, everything, has, has, therefore, is ceremonially impure and unclean, and the way to purify it is to apply death to it, the blood. And it's that blood that is going to, what, what's it doing? It is positionally sanctifying, cleansing everything. Does he have to do this all the time? No. He just had to do this one time with the nation. He, when they uh, established the covenant and they affirmed the covenant with God, that's the only time he is going to sprinkle everything with, I mean, everything, the people, the covenant itself, the tabernacle, the tent meeting, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, everything gets, gets splattered with blood. This is what we read in Exodus 24, 3 and following. Then Moses came after he has some, gone over part of the law in chapters 20 through 23, then Moses came recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is pointing out through the symbolism here, the representation of these twelve rocks, the nations united, they're all entering into this contract with God. 
And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord, because there is this now peace between Israel and God. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood, this was an enormous amount of blood, gallons. And he uh, took the other half of the blood and he splatters it on the altar. This would be the bronze altar out in front of the, uh, of the tabernacle. Then he took the book of the covenant, it's the, the whole law, and he read it in the hearing of the people. You think an hour sermon on Sunday morning gets long. He, he read the whole Mosaic law to them. Uh, and they, they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And that's what's quoted in Hebrews 9.20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And verse 21 summarizes these events in Exodus 24. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. It's the ritual cleansing of everything, the people, the furniture, the tabernacle, the law, everything that has been contaminated by sin or impurity representing the fact that everything has to now be set apart to the service of God. And the conclusion from this is that the law is teaching and the ritual is teaching that all things must be cleansed with blood that is death because sin has affected everything. The penalty for sin is death, and so everything has to be cleansed by means of death in order for God's justice to be satisfied. Then we go to Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. Now, let's, let's paraphrase that. All things are, are purified or ritually cleansed with death. There has to be the right kind of death. And without the shedding of blood, i.e. a death, there is no forgiveness. And the word for forgiveness here is that word aphasis, which stands for a forgiveness or remission of sin, which is the word that's used in Colossians 1.13, I mean 1.14 for, for forgiveness, in whom we have redemption, that is the objective payment. The, that, remember what Hebrews said back in verse 12? Having obtained eternal redemption. So he's saying the same thing, that, that, that eternal redemption was, that price was paid at the cross, the judicial cr- price was paid through his blood, that is his death, the forgiveness, that is the eradication of the debt. AIG didn't know anything anymore. This is the bailout of all bailouts, folks. We got bailed out at the cross. And there's no debt left for the sin penalty because Christ paid it all. And that's what's described again in Colossians 2, 2.14, that the, by canceling out that certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. See, that's when it was taken out of the way was when it's nailed to the cross, not when you trusted Christ as your Savior. And so the slate is wiped clean, but it's not applied in terms of your lack of righteousness and your spiritual death until you trust Christ as Savior. Now, that, now verse 23 is going to take us to a new dimension here. Therefore, it was necessary. There's that same word again, logical necessity. It's necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens, that is, the, the, the archetypes in heaven, the prototypes, had to be cleansed with these, uh, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so we'll come back and start to look at this next time because it gets into, we have to study these words for copies and hoopadigma types, two paths, and all this. But what we're seeing is that, that Jesus, this cleansing in heaven is the judicial acceptance or, or the acceptance by God of the payment, the judicial payment by Christ. And, and that, that sin that has had a universal impact, even in heaven, is now dealt with completely by this better sacrifice of the death of Christ on the cross. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this tonight and be reminded of all these different doctrines, how they're brought together. But the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that we dare not neglect this but we need to recognize all that's been done, the fabulous dimensions of Christ's work on the cross that have supplied and provided so much for us, that that's the basis for our life now, our service to you, and our future service uh, in the millennial kingdom. And we pray that we might, as we think, meditate, dwell upon these things, that it might challenge us and motivate us to greater obedience and to making the study of your word even a higher priority in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.